0: Greetings and a warm welcome to all of you to Inner Sections, where our aspiration is to help take what have been traditional domains and dissolve the boundary between them, so that by looking at life, looking at the universe, and looking at our own selves from that more holistic lens, you just never know what breakthrough, what spark, what insight gets generated. Today we're here to talk about an incredibly important topic, one that is really about having us have a conversation about having conversations. We are living through, as we all know, a time when there is tremendous ferment and transformation and disruption going on in some ways in the world, and each of us is recognizing that I may not have, you know, all the answers anymore like I used to in the past. The habits of thought and belief and ways of thinking and doing that we have operated with, they're ripe for some amount of transformation and change. And that requires us to have conversations through which we learn and integrate across many of us, in a team, in a family, in a community, in an organization and beyond. We are also living at a time when there are, painfully so, so many incredible divisions, isn't it, that we are seeing that cutting across our social fabric within a nation, but also across nations. That, again, leads to this acute need for people to somehow rise above those divisions and find a way to build bridges and connection and understanding. And then, you know, to top it all off, we in this pandemic time have been thrown apart from each other. We are having to live physically distanced lives from each other. And therefore, the whole medium of communication is being redesigned for this more virtual age. And then again, therefore, there is a critical need for us to step back and ask, what is that art? What is that science of having meaningful conversations? I have with us someone today who is very, very special in the way he has invested so much heart and spirit and thought into what it takes to become masterful at this craft of holding the space for conversations. I'm going to introduce Fred to you in just a moment. Let me tell you a couple of words about Fred before we bring Fred in. Fred is renowned for being a dialogue designer, and he's the author of a book called making conversation he is the founder of an organization he's founded around this theme of making conversations works at the intersection of business society and creativity he is um, the former global managing partner at the acclaimed international design firm ideo where he's worked with leaders and change agents to unlock the creative potential of business and government and education and philanthropic organizations he is also a senior dialogue designer with the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, has been awarded the fellowship to advance his research on creativity, design, and dialogue. Has been active at the Esalen Institute, a very pioneering network of truth seekers and change makers, where he helped shape their first. Movers Fellowship to Cultivate Social Entrepreneurship after the Greek economic crisis in 2011. He's been a trusted advisor to a number of very storied organizations and has served on the boards of other leading organizations as well, such as the Sundance Institute, NPR, New Schools at Parsons. And is the author of this book that I've just mentioned, which he has also translated into a digital offering for those of us who want to go beyond the book into a daily practice craft as well. And we'd want to hear about that as well from Fred in a moment. Has been featured in a number of leading media. Sought after speaker on design, future trends, and uh, and social innovation. So, um, on that note, let's welcome Fred into our midst. Good morning, welcome. <laughs> I, I'm I'm here from uh, Palm Springs. Just, I was just saying. So, it's nice I was going to I was gonna ask you where uh, getting getting to welcome you in from today. And. You are in our uh, almost like one year long history now at Intersections. You're the first of our speakers and guests who've uh, actually spoken to us from the outdoors, which, which is thrilling.
1: <laughs> I was like, why not? It's like a gorgeous morning and you might as well get a little bit. I, I understand that New York yesterday was hailing. So we'll, we'll give a little bit of beautiful birds chirping and go, go from there. So why not?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. My wife loves birds and um, she has this remarkable capacity when we are walking anywhere in a park on other lap of nature that she can just observe them just um, spontaneously and just like from a distance laser sharp eye for that kind of detail about this little bird on this branch that uh, i just I haven't developed that gift and yeah. so uh, so anytime i think of birds i, I remember that capacity that is in the human condition in much more information than we might do on an average day.
1: No, it's actually funny. Like it's like walking with a birder is a really different experience than walking with somebody who, who doesn't really know. I, I have a lot of friends who are birders, and it's what they're paying attention to is not so much what you're saying, and a lot more like what they're hearing in, in around them. And the because a lot of birders do it by like audio, like so like they hear the the, the song and that's how they I know what the birds are. Yeah.
0: I mean, that might be an interesting metaphor for some part of our conversation today. How can I we become better right. conversation birders? Hear the <laughs> stuff that we don't hear all the time. Um, I do that.
1: that's a Exactly right. Yeah. Everybody it's like, I'm seeing a lot of people like Chicago is my hometown, like I'm in Los Angeles tomorrow, so it's like a, it's it's good to see everybody. Thank you so much,
0: Craig, Let's maybe start from the very very like beginning of your pursuit and interest in in this in this topic of like how to create that space for people to have like you know meaningful conversations. I mean, you've uh, one of the things that really intrigues me about you is the multidisciplinary nature of your interests and pursuits, all the way from like design and art and architecture to activism, being really deeply invested in supporting organizations whose causes I'm sure you you know believe in, to ultimately this. Uh, human psychology aspect about like, what's that dynamic people to people that gets good conversations to happen. So how did, how did it all kind of like start?
1: Well, once you start, when you write a book, you're like, oh, wait, it started a long time before you thought it did. But, but to be utterly honest, I had done about seven, six years with working with the Obama administration. So I was like working with Elizabeth Warren, working with a lot of the major institutions that were actually kind of uh, founding new things. So Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was doing really interesting things. I was doing that. And at the same time, Working with media and large scale philanthropy, because I felt like those were like the, the key, as, as well as business, the, the, the key factors in large scale social change. And uh, we had a new president come in. I was the last client that I was working with was actually Vivek Murthy, who was a um, then Surgeon General, who was about to announce epidemic of anxiety and loneliness in America. And what happened was we were about to announce it, like it was like it was going to be announced on Friday. I emailed on Wednesday, it got a bounce back, and it was Vivek's been fired, which uh, is what happened to a lot of people who were part of the administration. And I just felt this kind of despair. I was like, well, all this work I worked on for the last you know seven years has kind of gone away. All much of the foundations had a shift. All the NGOs had to focus on fundamental human rights. And I was like, well, what have I learned? I mean, learned anything from this time. And I realized what I'd learned is how to bring together multi-coalition based partners and really get them into conversation and get them into conversation where they actually could move things forward in a way that had with some rapidity. And so I was like, well, maybe there's a book in that. So I, am um, just so you know, it's like, I gave a lecture for fast company. This is, this, it's kind of a funny, little funny story. I gave a lecture for fast company. An agent called me up. This is the book. It's like, she was a very good agent. She's like Eric Reese's agent and stuff like that. So I worked on the proposal and sold the proposal, which was, it was basically the Harper Collins was like, they pitched it back to me as mindfulness or conversation. They were like, this is about like thinking very, very carefully about the conversations you make and how you put them in the world. And I was like, great, it's sold. Like, I, I want, I want to go with you. But my favorite moment was when you sell a book, they take you out to a fancy lunch, like Nobu. So it's like this kind of fancy, you're having sushi and it's really amazing. And they're like, we're not going to touch the book. You can't say design and you can't say dialogue, but otherwise, which the book was called Designing Dialogue. I was like, they're like, otherwise it's all yours. And they were like, except the book that you wrote was how we lost conversation in the world. And the book we need is a relentlessly optimistic exploration of how we're going to find conversation in the world. And I was like, well, that's a different book. And my uh, publisher was like, I know, but that's the book we need. <laughs> like, uh-huh. so, so it ended up taking a good extra year to write the book. I, I, I budgeted about like nine months. It was like a year and nine months to actually kind of become become like relentlessly optimistic about the ways that we can kind of bring conversation back into our lives.
0: Um, I'm really glad that uh, you had that moment and that um, with all the expertise and experience that you bring that the publisher played played that role in helping <laughs> you deliver, for the benefit of the world, right? To be looking at the future than lamenting about the present or the past. So. That's right. And,
1: and and by the way, like made it a kind of different kind of journey for me, like at the end of it, like I I was talking to a young person who's actually in the last paragraph of the book, who was like, did you feel like this writing this book cured you? And I was like, well, I wasn't sick. And she was like, well, I think you were. And I was like, I think you're right. You know, it's like, it's like, I I realized that in fact, it had cured me during writing the book. So Uh,
0: In in what way? I mean, in what way do you feel like you're a different and more whole person now than when you were at the beginning of that? (laughs) You know, I was in deep despair. I, I don't. I don't think
1: I quite realized how deep the despair was, um, both from a political context, from like a kind of polarization context, from the kind of like the divide we were seeing in the workplaces, and the divide we were seeing amongst even like the kind of the endless canceling that was happening of people, and then right. canceling people, some who deserved it, some who didn't. And um and frankly, I think the premise of the book is that it's like if you ride the news hook, which we were doing at that time, or I was doing at the time, you're going to end up living your life by the script of the news hook it's like the new york times will be telling you what you should be thinking and how you should be feeling every day and in order to write the book i had to like break away and meet normal people not like luminaries some are luminaries but like normal people who had somehow gotten through the hardest conversation of their life uh using creativity and that was really endlessly redeeming it's like the the kinds of people i met one of my favorite stories is a group of women in salt lake city who were quite religiously conservative who started a sex positive book club and i remember meeting with them being like this is gonna be such a waste of time. And instead, I was like, this is the best lesson I've ever learned about noticing change and when change happens in a conversation. So I just met people who are, were real heroes, daily heroes, um, as I was doing it. And that was very encouraging for
0: me. I'm, I'm excited to hear that because uh, let me offer like a thesis that has been evolving in my mind over the last couple of years, which is, um, you know, we are seeing a greater interest in uh, organizations in business in society to infuse more humanity, right, into the otherwise like relentless Let's drive for efficiency and effectiveness and all that gets done in this capitalistic world that we live in. Right. And um, the, the thesis I have is that um, if you now start to kind of recognize the central role that a human to human connection, Our capacity to have conversations and to understand and appreciate, you know, that need to uh, nurture, you know, that spirit within. If you now start to recognize the central role that plays in making organizations flourish, making communities flourish, et cetera, that suddenly it starts to, in some ways, change the old world order. And those people who may have shone brilliantly on the basis of uh, a storied kind of academic path at all the elite institutions that got them to some level of tremendous uh, IQ and other kinds of attainments, they may no longer necessarily be the exemplars of these humanistic qualities, with sometimes just walking down the street with just like an everyday person that you just meet or a humble profession being a barista or being a dormant or something. Sometimes you find in those professions, people have really honed that craft of in fleeting moments, building really warm, sweet, beautiful human connections and being able to, anyway, I mean, what, what do you think of that? Absolutely. I mean,
1: so like, just to be really frank, like most of my best writing advice, my, my publisher was good. Like my editor was good. But um, came from Uber drivers. You know, it's like you, you talk to an Uber driver in LA, and you're gonna get a lot of writing tips. And it's sort of um, we were talking about India earlier. Getting across Mumbai on a bad day can take six hours. You know, and so it's yeah. like in six hours, you better just talk to your driver because otherwise, like it, it's you're just sitting there and sit for six hours. And and I would say that it's like often it's those people who feel like they're in these transitionary moments that are that are what that can actually kind of really bring out the depth and warmth in a conversation. And what's fascinating about, for instance, just the kind of physiological and actually spatial cues of for instance talking to someone who's a driver is that it's like you're often, you know, the only contact might be eye to eye the mirror, you know, that they're looking back at you. But it's like you can find yourself in an unguarded moment because you're sitting in the back seat talking to somebody. So it's like you actually are not in a confrontational perspective. You're actually kind of like and I, I write a lot about positionality. What Happens when you sit side by side. What happens when you sit when you when you're going single file? What what happens when you walk someplace with somebody? Like the, those kinds of things really matter. Um, and so those people, those people who are kind of in essence shepherds of our of our safe passage, um, can also be really remarkable conversationalists. When George Papandreou was grappling with the Greek crisis and really really trying to focus on like the fundamental conversation about democracy in in Greece, our first thought was let's train the taxi drivers to have great democratic debate in taxi because there's multiple people there. It's a great place to have conversation. One of the things that I learned during pilgrimage is that if you're walking in the same direction as somebody, you're not going to be very discouraging. You're going to be mostly encouraging because it's like you're you're going to the same place. You want everybody to get there. And so going in the same direction is a great place to have a really hard conversation.
0: Wow, there's like so many sparks flying <laughs> in my mind after like that inspired piece from you, Fred. i mean, just trying to distill it down to the essence of like all, all the things I'm hearing. Positionality, like how you're sitting, where you're sitting relative to the other person. The idea that when you're in a car you're going in the same direction, you all want to get there safe. So there is a common shared goal and that can be a foundation for constructive, open conversation and connection, right? I'm hearing from you. The idea that cab drivers can be a powerful mechanism for cultural transformation and, and dissemination of critical messages and fostering of dialogue around like even national issues. What a beautiful kind of um, collective sense of purpose to give our Uber drivers and, and beyond as well. Yeah. That's amazing. And then the fact that for you also, there was so much creative ferment that happened in, in those moments with those, those drivers. Now, for those of us, who want to up our game in terms of like how we maximize the conversational possibilities in an Uber or Lyft? Any one or two tips you can offer as to like how to begin that conversation?
1: yeah i mean it's like what i would say is that it's like this takes practice and one of the things that i write about in the book is that it's like i I inherited from my mom what i consider like a a, although i'm tired this morning so it's maybe less this this way but it's like i I inherited a a resting nice face so people just start conversations with me so i'm just like i'm like okay you started a conversation with me I'll, i'll i'll go with it but um i i feel like it's like it's a it's just takes a little bit of putting yourself out there and having and practicing i mean I'll give you an example. Uh, This was like very early. It was before the pandemic had started in earnest in in the US that we knew of. And I don't remember if you remember, but the president then gave a very hate-filled speech about Asians. And I was in a car listening to his state of the nation while with an Asian driver. And we were like listening, listening, listening. And at some point I was like, I think we need to turn this off. And I think we need to just have a conversation. It's like I could see him being really kind of hurt by what was happening. I was feeling hurt by what was happening. And um, it's like noticing how somebody's feeling, noticing when there needs to be an intervention, when you need to have a conversation. I spent a lot of time thinking about when do I feel change? That's a situation where I remember being in the back of the car, and I wasn't even mentally noticing change. I was feeling the effect of the words in the car and was like, let's just have a conversation instead. So I would say most of it, frankly, unfortunately, for some people, like you should see when I talk to kids is it's practice, it's like you don't become a virtuoso violinist just by picking up a violin, you, you do it by practicing. And so I think starting the practice and sometimes it's easier to practice with strangers than it is to practice with the people that we work with more closely or our loved
0: ones. So I love that idea about taking your everyday moments as like a safe space in which to practice and right. uh, and then you know you don't you never know what, what comes out of it. I mean there's another component of this um work that has you know emerged recently around what makes people really good at any one craft. You know, regular practice is is clearly one key piece of it. Often a struggle to find the right time to have meaningful conversations, not in terms of scheduling it. But in terms of having both conversation partners be in a mindful state to listen and communicate, I think that's such a thoughtful point. And um, it reminds me of, like like I was saying, you now this one thing I've, I picked up from some of this research on expert performance, which is that um, those people who are really, really good at a certain craft, they tend to form very nuanced if-then rules, where rather than just kind of walk into a situation with like a monolithic kind of method or approach as to like, here's how I'm going to start a conversation if I have something I'm feeling conflicted about or challenged about or unhappy with they will have like if the situation or the other person or me or is in this state then then this is what I would do but if we are in that state then that's what I would do and if we're in that you know anyway so that idea of like if then you know is is that part of like something that you've um, been kind of guiding teams and people on?
1: Yeah, I mean it's very interesting. It's like so. uh, I'll just a little confession, which is that the book has seven C's, and that's a very classic business book or self-help book convention, which is it's like they'd like to have seven C's, even when it didn't make sense. Like so, for instance, that the chapter called Clarity was originally called Talk Normal, which I thought was like the more basic way of saying Clarity. But what's interesting, so people are like, oh, there's a methodology here, and I'm like, it's not a methodology. It's an approach. And the approach idea is that it's like let's inspire you to think about how you would do something. So it's like I don't want you to like take me and do me it's like that's you can you can i mean you can you can borrow some of the ideas in the book but it's like what i'm more interested in is being like well what in fact do you feel like you can do and how do you feel like you can do it naturally and begin to adapt it in in that way so it's a very if-then approach like it's like like what's sort of surprising i think for people who read the book is that like uh, my opening chapter is commit right and it's like it's about why you should commit to the people in the conversation the conversations you're having and hold your ideals and values a little in the background so that you can actually really hear what the person's saying. And what I say is commit, like just like you, if you're gonna be in a conversation and you believe in what's happening, commit to it until you you don't. It's like, until you feel like, oh, this is actually freaking me out or I'm afraid, or this feels unfair, then don't commit. And so it's very funny. I write this long chapter that will make about like says, here's when you need to be like absolutely good at naming things. And then I'm like, until you don't have to worry about it, I would say there's a lot of I would say optionality. But if then thinking in in the construct of the book, it's like do it until it hurts and then stop is basically my my there's
0: something so powerful in that idea about commitment, because it means you have a choice right to be in the conversation or not. And my guess is correct me if I'm wrong, that if you then choose to engage in the conversation, it adds a greater sense of responsibility on your shoulders? Yeah, I mean, there's two things that I think are interesting here on on the commitment
1: side. And by the way, this is a really funny one where I I had I did, gave a lecture. I then had six Cs, and somebody raised their hand and they were like, "Hey, what happens if somebody just like doesn't want to be in a conversation with you and they hate you from the beginning?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, that can happen." And I was like, "That's a real thing." And so I literally was like on the fly. I was like, "Well, you just have to commit to the conversation." And so what was what's interesting about it is that there's two ways I, this plays out. I see this a lot in business context where people are like, "I'm going to come to the meeting, or I'm going to be on the board, or I'm going to do this, but I'm going to be the naysayer because somebody needs we need a naysayer, somebody who disagrees with everything to push the. Organization organization Forward, because like they're like I don't I don't quite think the organization can make it, and I'm like not so sure we need a naysayer. It's like you know it's like maybe we just need like everybody to roll up their sleeves and figure out how they're going to make it work. And so I'm like I've, I've advised a lot of friends who find themselves to be the naysayers on boards to be like maybe step off the board and, and, and give them room during the pandemic one of the things that i said because i I wrote a series of principles for rockefeller foundation and my other clients which is that if you're going to be in a meeting a zoom meeting we need you to commit you need to be there and and connect and if you can't commit and many days you can't then don't come and that just gives you more time one of the things that we've we've done over time has been like we need to be in everything and i think it's a great moment to learn that we don't have to be in everything my one caveat is if you're the sole voice of difference or you're representing a different a different perspective, different cultural context. Then don't step out too easily, like because that's we often do that. We'll be like, well, I'll get out because I'm like the only gay person in a, in, a, in a meeting. But it's like the reality is like um those are the voices that we we need the voices of difference in, in in those meetings. So commitment is a it turned out to be a pretty significant component of even beginning to think about designing dialogue and, and having creative conversations. Yeah,
0: beautiful, very powerful. I'm seeing you talk about choice as then. Uh, Natural ensuing like complement to the idea of commitment, which is uh, we have to give everybody the freedom to choose for themselves, and uh, uh, r- recognize that maybe some people will choose not to, and and that's also their 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 prerogative.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite stories, as I was researching the book, was like uh, talking to an oceanographer, and this, I have a whole section on naming and why you should name things that are special. And he talked about how oceanography had shifted over from the idea of oceans to ocean. Like this has been a kind of gradual move over the last ten years, where and the idea being it's like it's actually not oceans, we're all one water system, right? And so it's like, if something's happening in this part of the sea somewhere else, it's still affecting the water system here in the US. And um, they spent a long time changing it. And then the UN, where they've been petitioning to have world oceans day for maybe 20 years. Finally, a couple of years ago, was like, we're going to do World Oceans Day. And they were like, but we just changed it to ocean. Like, I wonder if we should go back to the UN and say, hey, can you make it oceans? And they were like, yeah, let's not lose a day for um, a word. You know, it's like, so it's like, it's okay. It's oceans. We we can kind of go from there. So I think the notion that it's like, you really want to stick with something until again, it doesn't feel like it's worth losing, losing a day for a single word that doesn't, doesn't feel exactly right. So
0: Yeah. I love it. I love this idea of being more mindful about that S versus the lack thereof. And, uh, you <laughs> know, I was thinking in a couple of ways like, one is like human beings versus mm-hmm. like humanity. That's right. That's right? a great uh, example or like uh, life with a small L or life with a big L. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's very fascinating. I mean, it's like I was raised, I lived in France for a long time where plurality and, because like you have plurality and and formalness and and based, by the way, everything is gendered within the construct, And so it gives you a really different nuance. You know, I think about this right now where we're seeing so much difficulty with people adopting things like them as opposed to she or he or, you know, or or, or like it's like, and when you start to think in, in the context of other languages, these things become quite simple. It's like where there's always been plural. There's always been the, the us or, or, or them kind of construct. So it's it's like why studying foreign language can really help, I think, in a lot of ways.
0: Beautiful. The need to bring authenticity, you know, struggling with like, how, how do you get... Um to really foster authenticity and um, getting people to like open up and engage on difficult topics. Uh, you give us a little bit of a glimpse of your thinking on this around this idea that, listen, I may be like Fred, I may have been studying the art of conversations and writing a book on it, but that doesn't mean that you should mimic me, right? right. you got to be doing it from, a, from your own core. Can you speak a little bit to, because this is something that in my own work on leadership, I've been really um, drawn to over the last 10 years, evolving in both teaching at Columbia and in our work with organizations, that leadership may be actually in some ways simpler than you think if you see it less as the acquisition of a whole host of outer like you know behaviors that you have to master. And you see it as the responsibility to really go deep, deep into your core and your connection with the universe and seek to speak from that, speak to come with the simplest and most intuitive expression of that core in in every moment. So, you know, that's how I've been thinking more and more about leadership and seeking to build a model around leadership. When you translate that into... Conflict, relationships, creativity, collaboration, your domain, thoughts, reactions?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is where you get the really corny version of me, but it's like, so I mean, just to give you a little bit of context, like my mother had a severe stroke when I was 24, and she was basically, she was a really good listener, a really good communicator, and she was aphasic, left um, paralyzed and aphasic for the rest of her life. And aphasia, for those of you who don't know, it's basically kind of the problem between kind of like understanding the words that are being said, um, or saying words that you think are right, but it may not be right. There's There's a lot of um vagueness about what what's really going on with aphasia um but one of the things that's really interesting is that very early on i learned that i had a time stamp on my life right that i I could die and that i was like the only real thing i can do is go out and explore the world by meeting people right so that that was really the kind of the 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 way you did it and i I think uh, elaine you've got a really great question i'd love to come back to that but i do think that um to do that you have to find your kind of the voice you have and just kind of live with it And, and by the way I've had many people in my life be like, you have to change your voice. You have to deepen it or sound less gay, or you have to not talk as quickly as you talk because I talk quite fast. And um, I was, I've been sort of like, yeah, not so much. It's my voice, get used to it. And, and I'll talk slow if you ask me to, but I, I think that, um, so that's, that's a very base level, but I really do think honing the authentic voice that's yours and kind of owning that is really important. And I'll give you an example. And I think it's a really interesting one, which is, I mean, for me, I had a young woman on my team. She wasn't young. She was like, she was just a little bit younger than me. And she she was at IDEO, uh, went on to run IDEO.org and and then now runs an amazing uh, nonprofit. But she had this very high, tiny voice, really kind of like whatever. And for years and years and years, she was like, men won't hear me. Can you... Help me with this, and I was like, finally, I was like, okay, listen, I'm gonna get you a speech coach because you're you've been asking me for this for ten years. Get her a speech speech coach. About a year later, I I walk out of the IDO office in San Francisco, and um, she's smoking outside of the and, and and I'm like, Patrice, what are you doing? Like, why are you smoking? And she's she's like, well, my my voice coach says it's the only way I'm going to deepen my voice is if I smoke. And I was like, well, that's not acceptable. Like, I was like, it's like having you smoke is not the way we're going to kind of change your voice. In fact, let's not change your voice. And so what we did is as a coll- We just basically made sure that every time she said something, we would say, Hey, everyone listen to Patrice. She's saying something really smart. And my favorite moment, was when she was in a room giving a talk to about 50 Texan businessmen, all of them like big six foot six, and she was trying to get their attention. And suddenly this Texan guy in the back, like from I think Houston was like, Hey, everyone listen to a little bit. She knows what she's talking about. And they all stopped and they listened to her. And so from that moment forward, you could see that people stopped to listen when Patrice would talk. It would, her voice was a key that something really smart was going to be said. And so I, I think sometimes in order for us to have the authentic voices we need, we need a collective around us to be like, let's point to this voice. Let's, let's call on this voice and let's make sure that people know just like how that works. So it's not just, authenticity isn't our own responsibility. It's like the people around us need to help us do that as well. One thing at I've been feeling a lot is over the last 15 months, we've gotten a little more authenticity in our communications in part because we're seeing each other in contact. We're seeing ourselves in places where we might not have gotten glimpses out before. So I'm seeing a lot of CEOs who are saying, my staff are kind of more humanized for me. I see them as more complete individuals or vice versa. And I think that could be a really interesting benefit to the mode of communication we've been grappling with over the last 15 months.
0: I've been thinking about that a lot, too, The that shift that's happening where uh, we used to be so diligent about the packaging, right, of, of our being, whether it was in the suit we wore when we went to work or just like what parts of our private and you know, a personal life we opened up versus not. And then you remember that moment, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you saw that, where uh, there was was this um, expert who was on television and then um, his his um, his child, his little baby and his wife like just like, you know, intruded, <laughs> the baby intruded and then the wife like crept under the camera as best she could, but like it was visible and then that happened and, and that was pre-pandemic, it became like a big little viral moment in social media and, and, and like that's becomes everybody's life since then and, and rather than see it as something that you have to be embarrassed for, it's just like that's my life, that's <laughs> who I am, that's my family. Meet my baby. I'm holding my baby in my hand now. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I love
1: that. I, I, um, I think there's a re- tremendous amount of humanity that, that that's been opened up for us, which is which is really wonderful.
0: But what I didn't do was connect that to authenticity and conversations and connections. And you're doing that, you know, and what you've just observed here, which I think is powerful, is beautiful. Think of it that way. Think of it that way. I loved um, everything you just said about. You know, your own kind of kind of like introspection journey with your own kind of like, you know, my voice, the Fred's voice. And then what you just shared about this colleague of yours as well. And the idea that, um, yeah, I mean, at some level we are in an ecosystem and there are other parts of it, too, that we can draw from and um, gain the support of to bring out our authentic self. Right. So it's like a responsibility.
1: And and I actually I think it's like as a leader, like I think what's really interesting is that sometimes actually authenticity needs to be planned a little bit. So, you know, so what's really interesting is like I work for an institution where they're just not that great at recognizing women's voices. And they're actually not that great at recognizing Asian women's voices specifically. And so and part of my team are like, oh, are these amazing Asian women. And so there'd be moments over the last year where I would be in a session running this kind of global leadership, like it's like really a high level people. And I'd be like, ooh, I forgot what comes next. Can I have you, Elena, j- join us and, and explain? So suddenly she would have to like take herself off mute, and she'd have to explain what's next. And I knew what was happening next. It was a, ba- a way for people to say, like, see, oh, wait, this person made." this like she's she's behind the thinking here and so like something you had to you had you're, you're purposely calling out that voice so I think as a leader sometimes we actually have to get slightly constructed in order to actually allow the authenticity of other people or the voices of other people to shine and I, I think that's part of our job frankly it's yeah. to be doing that
0: yeah it's beautiful so there is the individual level journey and then now we're just kind of talking through like the collective level journey have you found like as you're codifying these principles of how to create the space for the most creative and exploratory and discovery-rich conversations and all of that, right? Like uh, for these institutions that you've uh, been supporting and guiding, that um, there are certain norms like that. Uh, you know, I think you spoke a little bit a while back about these principles, right? Um, that um, can be collectively embraced. And um, you know, have you found it practically to be something that um, organizations have, you know, that has taken hold in organizations where the collective has risen to uh, to a place of uh, disciplined embrace, and practice of these principles?
1: Well, highly biased because like it's a condition of working with me is that, that we establish principles for the way that the conversations happen. So it's like, so yes, I, it's like, I, I've found that people, but I, I also find that once people have them in place, they recognize the value of them. So, you know, even like March one with my team at Rockefeller, and um, this was last year, we established principles. We wrote down principles for what we thought would be how to have the hardest conversations of our lives during a pandemic. And those principles have stayed fairly intact all the way through. And I think we'll actually stay intact once we come back into the real world in a lot of ways or into the lives. World and some of the principles were like it was the same thing as like commit or don't like if you can't show up for a meeting don't don't show up I would say that this year our principles shifted we rewrote the principles in the beginning of the year because we were like we made it so it's like let's imagine that we're like being celebratory let's imagine that we're being helpful let's imagine that we're like you know it's like so and that set of principles has really helped us kind of navigate the, the last four months which is like you know we're we're, we're coming to a, a new moment let's 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 understand that so. I would say that that it's always good. I think sometimes it's great if you can do it collectively. I myself authored our principles. I often author principles for the, um, the the convenings that we're doing. Um, but it's, uh, here's a weird thing. I have not seen many of my old friends and then I've made new friends during the pandemic and like they're, they're they're closer than my, my old friends. And I think part of that, and we, I was telling this with my team the other day, which is like part of that has to do with the fact that we've had to negotiate rules together that made us feel comfortable in engaging. And we had to see each other on days where one of us was not at our best, like one of us was crying or one of us was about to be evicted or whatever. And we, we would come together and try to fix things before we'd go into our meetings. And i think it's built a funny kind of bond whereas a lot of my friends who were in their old companies doing their old work kind of looked inward we've had to expand outwards in an interesting way and and it's made it so that like whenever i see somebody who works with me and i see them in person it's this, like love fest because we're all so happy to actually kind of get to see to meet each other in this real in this real way so I, th- I think there's a there's there's a lot that's happened this year that I think we're gonna we know is gonna be it's good for us there, there's a lot that's bad <laughs> it's like a lot of people died it's like but it's, there's a lot that's good I mean I do feel like in general I will just say like I'm very pro names and counter labeling you know it's like which is really funny so I mean as you know like who's really good with naming politicians right a politician can basically say like let's talk about the wall over here and they're not really talking about the issue that you need to do it becomes like a symbol of something that actually isn't the reality of what we need to be talking about, which is refugees in danger who who need to get to to safety. Like those are the things that we discuss. Um, anti-maskers is a really great example where it's like it's like we don't know why people are anti-masking. It's like we can't just presume it's something. So I have to think that one of the things I worry about is when we we think about labeling, overthink about labeling. Like it's like in, as a way, it's it's just the place where it's like I'm like get a good name for something until you don't, and then at some point you're just like no, let's let's it's not. One of the examples is um you know I tend to try to look for commonalities amongst humanity in the work I do. So what are the similarities between, for instance, like Israelis and Palestinians in the ways that they mourn? I'm really intri- in- intrigued by that. Like what 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 are the ways that we celebrate together? You know, what's interesting about mourning is that we all sing, we all cry, we all laugh, we all drink, we all eat, and we all protest. You know, there, there, there are things that we do uh, as part of a part of, that, are, that are active a- aspects of, of mourning. And um, I, I'm really interested in the commonalities in, in humankind, which might seem too optimistic, but I actually do think it's something that we need to be looking to right now. Again, I don't think that, I, that necessarily answers your question, Elaine, but it's it's a, it's a good one. It's a really rich one.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, feel free to come back with more, uh, Elaine, on that. Uh, to actually. actively listen? listen to diverse. Diverse conversations takes, takes courage and, you know, somewhat of selflessness where a leader might feel that certain ideals and interests may be, may be compromised, right? And um, I want to play on that a little bit with something that you write about in your book, which um, I found really powerful and beautiful, which is to draw a connection between the beliefs we have and the conversations that we then are able to kind of, you know, do with each other. And you talk there about the fact that in conversations, often uh, there is a certain amount of challenging that is taking place of stereotypes or other kinds of just predispositions and biases that you might knew either about people or groups or just uh, certain positions and certain issues and all of that, right? And, and, um, And you use this phrase, which I really like. You say a creative conversation is about choosing to hold your existing beliefs more lightly. I love that. Yeah and it's um, hard to do. And it's yeah.
1: counterintuitive, right? Because people people feel like, "Oh, my job is to hold my values at the core of everything I do." And it takes a long time to develop your values, and so it's like it's like you you don't want to sacrifice them very very lightly, but at the same time, I think that that I'll give you an example, a really very simple example. We have a house in Maine. I had a day where there was a guy hunting our property and he was out there like shooting arrows on, on, on to, for deer. And we had three kids running around and a dog and all that sort of stuff. And I, I came up to his truck and the truck had bumper stickers for um, a candidate that I didn't vote for bumper stickers that for in general, that I just didn't really agree with. And I was like, "Ugh, I'm not going to like go talk to this person. And then I was like, you know, if I can talk to heads of state or prime ministers or whatever, I can talk to this hunter on my property. <laughs> and so I went up to him and I just basically was I knew him and his son. And I was like, Hi, I'm Fred. What's your name? And we just, talked and we talked about venison I was just like cool with you hunting just watch out for the dog and the the three kids and he was like we're really good about watching for people and it's it's that seems like a very light conversation but it was quite terrifying to go into in the first place and um I was I was prepared to just be like we're not even going to talk about politics or or difference we're going to just kind of like talk about the things that we can agree on and it was the beginner beginning of a very long conversation like we've had it now for months and months like whenever I see him so I, I would say that one of the things like we ourselves get into a place where we cannot or we feel like we cannot because our, our value difference go into a conversation. And I disagree with that. I will also say and it was asked earlier on, if there are people who you cannot talk to who are important to be with, then just do something with them. You know, that doing something with somebody actually is the same. It creates the same kind of connection around that. And then, you know, Elaine did elaborate on the the race issue. And it's a great question, Elaine, which is like, is it is it race or is it class, or is it caste, or is it other 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 things that are that are in place? And I, and I think we're in a I, I have no answer. I think we're in a moment of great exploration of that. Which is which is like what are the words that have meaning and I think we're also seeing a kind of hmm I don't know if this is the right word I'm gonna just use it anyway but like a, a puritanism about the language that we use like I work with an organization that basically just removed the word discover from everything in their literature because they were like oh discovering is a it's colonial basically and like like do we have to like re-edit like everything in our lives to make sure that like it's feeling exactly appropriate to, to this right moment right? or or do we actually like Can we just glean what we mean when we're saying discover as opposed to kind of like put a colonialistic perspective
0: on it. Wow, that's, uh, that's powerful. That's beautiful. Reminds me of a moment um, in my teens, uh, you know, I I was very fond of mathematics. And um, I remember like writing a paper on just like to condense and codify my own thinking on this is like, is mathematics created or is it discovered? (laughs) And it was actually for me, like a really profound moment of uh, trying to understand the connection between us and the universe. You know, I mean, is there like a matrix out there of like all all, all, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the mathematics in my case, you know, I would think a moment and all we need to do is to find a way to tune into it. And then it just gets streamed in, you know, through. our. I
1: love that because you were talking about that. We were talking about how you kind of got to creativity through mathematics. And I got to, I mean, I I just got to mathematics mostly because I had to run a business, but it's like, uh, so it it was maybe like less creative, but it's like, I mean, what, what, where did you end up on that? Like, is is it discovered or is it made? Or did you I, not-
0: I'm Personally, I'm a hundred percent confident that it is discovered. That said, I respect very much what you're saying about holding your beliefs lightly. <laughs> so <laughs> if you were going to take a passionate position on the other side, I would no. be curious and interested in hearing and, you know, all of that. But, uh, much as I have deep uh, regard for all of the greatest, most prolific mathematicians and pathbreaking work that they've done, I think that they were more tuning in rather than kind of like creating from scratch. And, you know, one, one good sort of um, example to me of that is Einstein. You know, Einstein, he really, perhaps you've studied him, you know, as well, but he, he really believed in this uh, capacity of intuition as something to allow you to be able to get some whispers from nature that we otherwise don't have the opportunity to listen to. And, you know, so nature is whispering its secrets to us, but we are just not paying attention, just like those birds, you know, that we're talking about that birders are able to listen to. But if only we were, all all of truth is actually there waiting for us to receive it.
1: I kind of agree with that. I, I sort of I sort of believe that it's like it's like if if we're highly attuned the world will reveal itself to us in an interesting way. And that's actually one of the reasons why I believe our job, you know, just for the people on the call, I, it's like I believe that our job is to go out and have conversations with people, people who are different from us, people who are like who are afraid of people. It's like because I think we start to reveal the foundation of humanity which it's like like let let it reveal itself. It's like like that that's that's part of it. And uh I think that once you kind of tune in that way, It just becomes this, I mean, we live in a magical place, right? It's like, but it just becomes a bit more magical if you start to kind of really pay attention to what's around you.
0: I really liked what you also just said a moment ago about sometimes those conversations may not be about like verbal exchange. It might be about like doing something, you know, with that person. That's a profound and beautiful idea that you just offered me, uh, Fred. Uh, I love it. And it made me remember another kind of uh, moment. As my father was aging, he started to spend less time, you know, in the outside world, more in his own Home and in his own room, and uh, at that point, I noticed that with my mother, that uh, a special kind of dynamic grew. Where sometimes she would just go over to to the room that he was in and just sit there. And even when I came visiting, sometimes she would say, "Have you spoken to your father?" I said, "Yeah, yeah. We've caught up on this, and we've caught up with that." And she's like, "No, don't just like feel like you need to catch up on things. Just sit there and just be there. Just be there with him." Yeah. And even in that shared silence where maybe he's reading the newspaper or she's just, you know, knitting or something. There was something profound that was happening as if you want to call it like a conversation almost.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's funny. I Similarly, I was just, I was reaching for something, but I, I was or doing an interview for Fortune and it was, but it was in Hong Kong. The The journalists were in Hong Kong. It was in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong's been having a, a long, not great moment. It was, in, it was in Hong Kong about six months ago. And it was, we had just a series of really bad things that had been happening in Hong Kong. And the question was like, what do you do? It's like, how, how, do, how do we have the conversations that we have? And I'm like, you know, if you're of this generation, go to your grandmother or your great grandmother and ask her to teach you how to make the soup that she makes that you've always wanted to learn and don't even talk about politics. The reality is that it's like, just like kind of like learning something from someone is a is a form of conversation and it's a form of, of community building. And I think it really relates to your work, Hattendra, in terms of the notion of like, leadership and the way we develop our leadership, which is that one of the things that that like a a boss can do, for instance, is ask to learn from somebody who's who's below them. and And that's a tremendous or works for them that's a tremendous kind of way of engaging and it's rich for both people it's like we don't just learn from the people above us we learn from the people who who work for us as well so
0: yeah 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 beautiful and we learn by listening and you have um in your books, you know some really great insight on um how to hone hone the listening craft uh, we spoke about the birders and uh, i was wondering if you, you might be able to like share with our audience the story of beth right uh, and that moment where she grew as a listener which i thought was r- really beautiful Everyone loves
1: that story, and poor, poor, Beth. Like she's like she's like she's known. known I mean, she's, she's known as the, the the woman who wouldn't listen, and then she did. But it's like, but she. Um, so Beth's a dear friend I mean she's a um, a, a, her her child is basically our godchild but Beth was my business development person my business person for at IDEO for most of my life at IDEO and um, she was Stanford graduate like multi-graduate and she is um, so fast like she was one of those people in the meeting where she's like she knew where we were gonna go from like the moment the meeting started and would just kind of like jump ahead and it was great except for the fact that it's like I'd be like Beth you know people need to get there with you it's like you can't just kind of like jump straight ahead. And so we did two things, like there were two things that basically we should did because we, we'd have our Friday morning business development meetings and there would almost always be tears because people would be like, that's not listening or whatever and um or she's, she's just jumping ahead first thing i did is i was like let's cut back on the coffee so less of the 24 ounce venti espresso or whatever and maybe have some tea which is that that was like my prescription but then this funny thing happened which is that there was a baby boom in beth's life and she had promised that she would do blankets for every baby in her life and in order to do that many blankets she was crocheting non-stop and so gradually she brought her crocheting into the meeting, very gendered, right? Like, it's like, it's like here's a woman bringing baby blankets into a room where it's like, there's a lot of kind of gender perceptions. And But what happened is that kind of quiet act of basically mindfulness, where she had to pay attention to what it was like to crochet and pay attention to the conversation, radically slowed down. Somebody mentioned silence. There was a lot more silence in Beth. Like she was, like she was listening, and then she would wake up at certain moments and just kind of give her observations. And it just was like it shifted radically. And it turns out there's quite a bit of science around knitting, other kinds of mindless activities, doodling. People often say that doodling is a better. You retain more doodling than you do if you take notes. Believe it or not. So it's like that that, with that something where you're kind of like. I was with a indigenous historian in Southwest and um, he talked about husking corn and like how like the women of the village would often husk corn and that's when the most important decisions were being made. Or in my my community's upstate quilting circles were where a lot of the key decisions were made by the women of the communities. And so this notion of like the quiet contemplative action that allows you to kind of tune in even more is, is really a powerful thing. And and that was a that was a huge discovery for, for Beth and myself and, and and stuck with me for a long, long time afterwards.
0: I think it's a great gift you've given us because I am aware of the power of those kinds of very simple repetitive practices that really are very immersive in nature as something that, you know, we might do to let's say relax our minds, to rejuvenate, to unburden ourselves from the affairs and distractions of the day and whatever's on our on our mind. But but I've I've seen it as something that you would do in isolation. Right. The idea that you actually bring it into a a conversational moment with somebody and it helps you get immediate rewards. In making you a better listener, and that conversation is new to me. So that that is really powerful, really beautiful.
1: And, you know, it's like funny, as, as a culture, we're so afraid of silence, right? Like, so it's like, so one of the things that I often do is I will purposely build in like five minutes of silence into a meeting about two thirds of the way through. And what that does is when we're in silence, a different kind of mental activity happens. The psychology of creativity says that silence actually allows you to make connections in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. And so if you build like a five minute, like, why don't you just kind of take quiet notes in the middle of a meeting? you'll often find people are entirely refreshed for the last third and can often move forward into some kind of action. So there's we often think about like silence in the beginning of a meeting as a way to kind of take a break from the otherness of the day. I often find silence in the middle of a meeting actually helps us turn the corner to see, see the change that needs to happen and then kind of move towards it. So. And is
0: that silence usually just like uh, unstructured or do you provide them an ask as to what you're inviting them to do? It really it really depends
1: like in the groups that you feel like you can do in an unstructured way just like silence like i did this the other day with a group of like i coach a group of leaders and like we usually have a kind of a silence and yesterday i was just like everybody in silence walk away and bring back one thing that they love from around them and it was really interesting because what happened is when they brought back the thing that they loved. You know, it took about a minute of silence. The excitement of explaining why they loved it was like so palpable. You could sort of feel this kind of like rejuvenation in the in the conversation. People were like, "Here's a chess set that I built when I was like 12, You know, and I'm like fifty, but I'm like it's like it's like and it was it was really incredible. It was like it's like, so. So I, I think it's a you can do it just silently, or you can basically give a little task, and and they, they both work.
0: Yeah, what a beautiful task to give. I, I love that. I'm I'm going to practice that with the, with my team next. Uh, next time we, we come together folks all of you i think could could maybe take that on isn't it what, what a beautiful thing and and i guess especially in a zoom world today we have it's so much practical for each of us to actually bring some personal possession almost like improvising spontaneously in the moment because we're actually in a home environment Right. And you learn so much. I learned so much about the people who I coach. Like, I mean, I, I always throw like my, the opening
1: prompt was like, if somebody broke up with you tomorrow, what movie would you watch? And like learning about that was like a whole other thing. So, so it's like those little human things can actually kind of reveal and open up a group in, in a way that, that, are, that are really profound.
0: Beautiful. We're kind of on, on time. I would love if you, are, are you open to spending about five more minutes? Maybe just, maybe just talking about just giving us some guidance in this virtual era, you know, in this yeah. uh, uh, displaced and um, hybrid times that live in in terms of the kinds of interactions that are happening. Like, for example, here's one challenge that I'm, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. When you're having like a large group meeting, how do you how do you maximize the commitment people bring to like keeping the videos on? I find that to be sometimes like you want to empathize with those who may be having internet issues and you don't know who is on a given day and who's not and, you know, all of that, right? And so on the one hand, making it a complete rule, which says like, unless you're fully, fully on and fully, fully leaning in, you shouldn't be here. I, I, you know, does that work or, or, or is there another path to that? But I I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I, I had a very interesting experience. Like I, I lecture at Stern, not to mention uh, the, the competition, but it's like, uh-huh. but I lecture at I Stern and, um, and what's really interesting is like last year and when I gave my lecture, I would say maybe a third of the cameras were on Interestingly, this year when I gave my my, it was a day long series of lectures, I would say like all the cameras were on, and in that context, it was really interesting thing. I was which was I was like I was like if I can't see you, I probably won't be focusing on you, you know. So it's like it's like so it's like I I won't necessarily give you the attention you need, and so I think that if you're attending and you're attending because you want to be seen and understood then that means you need to be seen and understood. So I think, I mean, I'm me. I, I feel very comfortable saying, hey guys, like camera's on or uh, unless you absolutely can't. But it's like, but but it's a, honestly, I, it's a great example of a principle, which is like, it's like, if you, if you can't be there, then don't be there. And that's okay. Like it, for, for, the, for the moment that we're in. So that's a very simple no. way. And, and you know, I, I have a whole chapter on, well, it's a, it's a short chapter that I had to write in March on how to have the hardest conversation of your life during a pandemic on Zoom. And these are some of the things that we talk about which is like we established principles. I had one in my principles, I had a thing called a wild card day, which is like if somebody shows up and they cannot do it and they just want to cry for the whole time, then like, that's fine. We'll be there and you can cry. And I, I had it. I had clients who would show up and they would just cry for an hour. You know, and I was just like, I was like, that's great. Like if I mean, you're paying me, but it's like, <laughs> but it's like if, if that's helping, I'm really, I'm happy to do that. So. Wow, beautiful.
0: I want to maybe then close out with two asks of you, uh, Fred. One is, you um, any final words or you know insights you, you you want to kind of like you know offer up to to our audience before they leave about things they can like immediately perhaps like benefit from or implement Uh, So that's one. And any final thought, recommendation? The other is, um, yeah, where can they turn to for resources to further dive into your work? There's certainly the book, but you've also built a digital offering. So at the minimum, perhaps you you should share that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, first things first, I think um, I would just charge you with the idea that making conversation and getting creative about the conversations in your life is probably one of the most important things we can do right now. Like I actually, I am unabashedly saying that this is actually something that will save the world if we can just have the conversations that matter. And they will also make conversations less afraid, you know, less, less scary. One of the things I talk about is keep a conversation notebook, no, moments where you've succeeded because that's stuff to learn from. So you can figure out your own approach to how conversations work. So look to yourself for the greatest inspiration or, lo- or look to the people around you for that, that inspiration. There's a book, Making Conversation by Fred Dust. There's also it's really, I, I love it. It's 90 seconds a day, audio content. It's, I think it's called Discover Making Conversation and, and yeah. it's, it's like, it's basically 90 seconds a day. It kind of prompts you to a series of things and it's like it's been fun. I mean, it's, it's, I would say that, that um, it's pretty funny. And by the end of 14 days, you'll get really sick of hearing my voice, but that's okay. It's like, it's like, so it, it's like, but it's, we're using it a lot right now to kind of get people up to speed really quickly. A lot of people who don't necessarily read, um, who, who, who want to kind of be able to kind of learn the skills.
0: Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I remember looking at uh, something my daughter was doing when she was in middle school. She was learning geography, like the regions of the world that different countries, you know, the borders and, you know, and all of that and the capitals and, I used to do that by reading a book on geography, and she had some kind of an online tool where it would just like flash, you know, a certain region of the world. And you had to quickly say which country it was, you know, but just, and you know, and then it would say you're right or wrong. And then similarly with the capitals. So it was very interactive, very dynamic, very quick. And I realized, my heavens, if I had a tool like that, my capacity to ultimately mem- mem- memorize and kind of come to know the shape of the world, it would be so, so much more rapid and so much more efficient. And I think in some ways we have done as a society so much to create these tools to hone the intellect from an IQ standpoint. And today we have the opportunity through the kind of innovation that you've just talked about. You know, we are very invested in digital in our work as well, around also using some of these latest capabilities to hone emotional social intelligence, social intelligence, if you want to call it. So so who knows, in the ultimate upgrade that humanity is striving to get to, that uh, some of these possibilities we have today, which were not available to people in centuries past, might take us to an even better place very soon.
1: I will just say, I think that the next generations are mythical creatures. I mean, what what, what they can do and, and where they're going is remarkable. I, I love watching, watch, I love being with them and, and seeing yeah. them. It's really
0: remarkable. Wow, that's a, that's a great phrase, uh, the next generation of mythical creatures. Uh, yeah, So much power in, in, and potential in them, right? So, so beautiful. Fred, silent voices are feeling you know, deeply nourished by everything that you've shared and are carrying away so many valuable tips and much more that they can partake as well when they you know take your book and, and the class as well, the digital class. So thank you again uh, for joining us. Uh, you take care, uh, all the best for the rest of your time in Palm Springs in LA and uh, look forward very much to seeing you soon. Fred, thank you for being with us today.